And yeah, I have randomly a Swiss passport for him, actually. Like dog passport. For him specifically. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we were like in Switzerland. We were in Switzerland when we did it. He actually sort of illegally got out of Ukraine and then like because they just didn't check him. Um, and so then we just had to get his paperwork in order, which is actually harder because he had like a twin brother and the people who did the microchip put his microchip number, they, they flipped the microchip numbers of the two twins. So the number in his passport was actually wrong by one digit. And so the like doctor in Switzerland had to test everything again. And we actually just did all, redid all of his vaccinations. Um, so we were, yeah, he was vax maxing very hard. This is a kind of um, Shakespearean like identity swap like thing with with twins where like the the poor twin and the the rich twin. The, well, the, this, is, this is the prince and this is like the prince and the pauper. Yeah, actually. yeah, there it's we Mark go. Twain. It's Mark Twain. Um, uh-huh. This is your dog, right? You're talking about your dog. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Network Age. I'm Mitchell Ritson here with my co-host Nilrun Mardux and Timluk Miptev, and today our special guest. Padlet Bilneb. Uh, Padlet, uh, glad to have you. Thanks for being yeah, with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so there's a lot of topics we're really excited to get into with you, but you work for Gitcoin um, and are involved in dispensing grants as part of that project. And I think that we've discussed like the idea of public goods before and, and what that looks like. And um, would love to just hear about your work in, in Gitcoin and how you got involved and sort of what is exciting you about it. Yeah, definitely. Thank, thanks for having me here. Big fan of the pod. So great to be on here. Yeah, so I currently contribute uh, full-time to Gitcoin. I've been contributing in one capacity or another for about like 11 months, almost a year at this point. But I, you know, contributed a little bit, took some time off and, and I joined full-time about six months ago in the public goods funding work stream. So basically, Gitcoin is, as of now, a DAO in the Ethereum ecosystem. Gitcoin emerged as a company back in 2017, 2018, and the original goal of Gitcoin was to fund open source devs. Basically, open source software as a whole produces hundreds of billions of dollars of economic value, but you know the, the devs that create and maintain OSS, open source software, receive none of that back. So the original goal was to figure out ways to and new incentive mechanisms so that these OSS devs could receive funding and basically not have to just do open source software as a passion project, as a side project. They could receive legitimate funding. You know, something that we hate to see is like people who are working on open source software, but then they can't afford to do it more. So they go join a bank or something and work in some value extractive enterprise. So basically trying to create like a better world, a more positive some world where basically you can work on OSS and, and get paid to do it. The mission throughout the past few years has, has evolved a little bit since then. We ended up taking on this broader stance of trying to fund the public goods especially within the Ethereum ecosystem. Basically, like the economic definition of public goods is that they're non-excludable, non-rivalrous. That's kind of the old world way of thinking about it. But within Ethereum, the majority of software open source and Ethereum itself is a public good. We can begin thinking about very interesting ways that software and other sorts of like digital entities like function as public goods. And, you know, they have largely the same issues and they are the same thing essentially as OSS, where, you know, a lot of value is produced by public goods in Ethereum, but yet there's not great ways for that value to roll back to the devs, majority devs and other folks who, who help to build that those public goods. So that was kind of the original goal. And basically the way that we go about doing it is through these, these funding rounds. We have done them quarterly for the past, I think at this point, 15 quarters. 
and essentially we use this mechanism called quadratic funding. And quadratic funding is was the mechanism invented by Vitalik Buterin, Glenn Weil, Zoe Hitzig, and basically it's a way for you to vote with small amounts of capital. Typically in a matching campaign, it's like a one-to-one donation, like every dollar you donate is matched with a dollar. But with quadratic funding, the core idea is that the amount of people who donate to something matters far more than the amount donated. So for example, if you have on one hand one person who has 100 die, and on the other hand you have 100 people who all have one die, and they all give to the same project, the person who gave 100 die, their match is far less than the 100 people that give one die each. And the idea with that is, you know, generally if a public good, you know, it should be public, it should be supported by the people that use it. So the idea is something that creates the most amount of positive externalities would have the most amount of people supporting it, the most amount of people giving small amounts of capital to, to fund it. So, so generally we've done that for about 15 rounds. And yeah, looking forward, we're we're increasingly trying to fund shared needs, which, which we see as a, as public goods with a much broader stance. But yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up, wrap it up there. But that's a little bit about about Gitcoin and, and what we've been doing the past past few few years. Awesome, thanks for that. Yeah, it's a really cool and interesting mission that you guys have there, and I think public goods are so important and open source software in this ecosystem. I was curious to dive in a little bit more to quadratic funding because I think that's been a bit. I don't know if a buzzword is the right the right term, but like a sort of hot button issue. Some people seem to be really into it. Other people have, um, I believe it has some drawbacks. Shout out to Zoe Hitzig, my uh, a former classmate of mine. <laughs> nice. We'll see. We'll see if she's a, a network age listener. Um, yeah, I was I was wondering if if you have any thoughts about like the positives versus the the negatives in that case, and what some drawbacks might be, and and ways to address it. Yeah, definitely. It's great to hear that that you and Zoe went to went to school together. Yeah, I'm doxing um, myself a little. But. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone on the network yeah. age went to school together. That's like it's kind <laughs> That's of true. unique value. But proposition. We're friends, even. Yeah. Well, actually, anyway. I guess the thing is, we sort of didn't go to school together, but the school overlaps, and we try to like just keep it all in the family. Yeah. Uh, back back to the real topic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm happy to speak like kind of candidly about quadratic funding. I, I think this is something that's been top of mind for me lately. I think quadratic funding is a really powerful mechanism to basically gather collective intelligence and leverage that to find out which which goods or projects or entities are, are most valued by the community, which I think is very valuable. I think that's like a really important core primitive when you think about public goods and open source software. Like necessarily they have to be things that lots of people use, lots of people value, and that people can have free access to. So, you know, quadratic funding is one way to kind of get around the freeloader problem where it's like, why would I support something if, you know, I use it for free when like other people use it? Like, why would I give? I can just keep using it. You know, one way to get around that is if you have this matching campaign where, you know, you can give $1, it can be matched up to like $70 or $100. That's like a pretty powerful way to signal to people that like even giving small amounts can add up. But generally, like, you know, the core issue with quadratic funding is like civil resistance, as simple as anyone who, you know, pretends to be someone else online. Like in that example I gave of like one person, 100 die, 100 people, one die, you know, I could just make 99 other MetaMask accounts on like, you know, different computers I have and just like dis- distribute my 100 die to my 99 mm. clones. Like that, that's like a, a core issue. And like at Gitcoin, we have a fraud detection team that works, you know, kind of tirelessly to like do that. But it, it, all, it ends up 
wasn't being like a chicken and a mouse game or like a cat, a cat and mouse game. Um, <laughs> the chicken and mouse. Classic game, chicken yeah, and mouse. Yeah, classic game of chicken and mouse. Um, but, you know, it's like whenever the fraud detection team gets better, the, the symbols get better, and like it's kind of a never-ending a never ending cycle. So, you know, there, there's no way to like really solve civil resistance where we're, we're trying to think of innovative ways with like, mm, you know, being ideas. able to... Yeah, yeah, like, like decentralized... Um, yeah, identifiers and like verifiable credentials. We have this thing called Gitcoin Passport where you can basically like sign with different parts of your digital identity in like a pseudonymous way. Like you can link your Twitter or your ENS or your Bright ID um, to your wallet and it can prove that you're like more likely not as simple than you are. But, you know, there's no perfect solution for it. I think that's like one core, you know, I would say opportunity challenge when it comes to quadratic funding. Um, Additionally, it's, you know, this, I, I, I think collective intelligence is really valuable, but there, there are obviously instances where it, it matters to have, you know, a panel of experts or people who kind of know something better than everyday people. And, you know, I think at some point that is valuable when it comes to, to funding public goods. So I, I think all in all, like quadratic funding is a powerful mechanism. I think it's important to have an ecosystem, but I've I'm increasingly excited about future experiments where we can like push the needle forward and uh, ideally kind of move beyond quadratic funding or at least incorporate into a, a larger mechanism. I think you've answered my question a little bit, and I want to maybe get into this more later when we talk about urban specific and stuff we're looking at with mm-hmm. Akbar. But it sounds like you think of more just people wanting to fund public goods and putting technical and social energy into that as a much bigger thing than like the specific mechanism used. And like quadratic funding might have been more of a sort of bootstrapping thing to get that interest. But I think, but it sounds like you would not necessarily recommend it to a new org as opposed to like just kind of, you know, going ahead and generating the excitement around doing public stuff. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I, I think in some ways I, I would recommend quadratic funding as a powerful way to bootstrap <laughs> an ecosystem. I, I've thought about this in the context of Urban a fair bit with, you know, if like, for example, Urban Foundation was to run, you know, a quadratic funding round where anyone who has, you know, a planet or two or a star or something could have a certain amount of votes and they could vote on, you know, what they want to see funded. I, I think it's like a really great way to bootstrap an ecosystem if you have a large amount of capital and you want the community to distribute it. If like, for example, you know, that's kind of the Urban Foundation's mandate is, is to like kind of distribute the address space. So yeah, Tim, like would love to hear kind of your thoughts on, you know, effective ways to do that either with the foundation design, with the grants program, which I know you're a part mm-hmm. of, or, you know, allowing the community to kind of help distribute those funds. Sure. And I guess we're just sort of jumping into the topic here, which is great. So, um, and just for background for listeners who may not know, I used to be the technical director of Urbit Foundation, very much in charge of distributing address space and choosing projects and, um, you know, mentoring people on, including, you know, your friend Hadzad Walrus. I was like the person who brought him on doing that. Um, and then now I've, you know, moved on to working on Ookbar, but I am a member of, you know, one of the three people on the Urban Foundation's board. So I do think about this. And what I was going to ask is, in our specific case, we essentially have incredibly broad agreement uh, across, like, the stake the stakeholders in the ecosystem as to what we want the foundation to do now. And they've recently crystallized that, which is basically like working on the core Urbit engine and kernel and making it really good and using grants for that, um, you know, like hiring people to do it, et cetera. So if we did some kind of voting mechanism, uh, it, it it would just get that same conclusion. So what I'm wondering is like what you would recommend for the case of, 
we already know what we want and we're trying to find ways to get more people to put money into it. So like everyone knows what they want. All the people who potentially would put money in sort of know what they want, but it's more of the classic public goods type thing where it's a little hard to get them to do that unless we just sell them address space. And it would be interesting to find a non-selling address space way to get them to be down to put that money in. So I'm curious about that because I can tell you, I, I know voting wouldn't solve it because everyone's already aligned. Right, right. I, I think that's the, the biggest challenge is, is getting to that state of alignment. So, I mean, I, I think one of the bigger hurdles has, has already been, been jumped over, mm -hmm. it seems, in this case. I, I think it, it kind of comes down to some degree of a coordination problem, but it, it sounds like it's just a matter of like aligning key stakeholders who have an interest in their ecosystem and the kernel engine like developing to an optimal state. I think one thing that I often think about public goods and OSS is kind of like, you know, a, a rising tide that kind of lifts all boats. And I, I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of really strong narratives that can be attached to public goods, especially within the urban context. I think mm. the more that every company, you know, if all the companies that help sponsor assembly were like, yeah, like we want to see the kernel engine develop, we want to see the Urbit core protocol develop better. I think that is like really the, the route to go of like, look, like you're whatever company you're building on Urbit is going to be vastly improved if we can like get this done. I think that's a really powerful coordination mechanism because it's like kind of a win-win for everybody. And I think it's just a matter of like making that, of making that clear. Awesome. Yeah. Before we really dive into Urbit and what public goods might look in there, I wanted to um, head back to Gitcoin a sec and, and see what else we can learn from your experience there. And I'm curious if you have any favorite Gitcoin projects or um, ones that you think were particularly successful that, that we can learn from it from as we continue to build sort of like the Web3 infrastructure? Yeah, totally. I... There's, there's been a lot of really great projects that have, have come through Gitcoin grants the past two years. I think ones that I always think about are, are Bankless and, and POAP and Uniswap, Yearn. That's actually interesting. Can we take a step back there? Because I, I was familiar with Uniswap going through. And did, um, did Prism go through it when they were starting it? Or was that a, yeah. like, sort of a set? Okay, so right, right. Um, I believe so. But yeah. These are I all actually, the big names. <laughs> I did not know that Bankless had. Like, how did how did that work? Yeah, so I'm happy to speak to this from my perspective. It's a little bit before I, mm -hmm, I joined. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I mean um, yeah, David and Ryan were, were starting Bankless, and they would use Gitcoin grants to receive recurring funding from Gitcoin to basically talk about Ethereum and basically build out their their you know media media empire. As, as where's our is. where's our Gitcoin money? Well, <laughs> I was I was thinking. I mean, we do have like a growing set of Urbit people who do stuff online. Um, you know, I want those. Whatever we need to have a word for teal bucks, but for Urbit and like I want those. Uh, Gitcoin bucks. bucks. It's, it's just Gitcoin bucks. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, they're not. They're not actually. Doesn't he doesn't uh, do anything in particular? Um, but. Yes, we, we do have people doing that. And it's actually something I hadn't exactly thought of, of just, you know, literally just making the org, having the people doing a media empire for Urban and just ask for the money. I think all of my things were more galaxy brained. And that's, um, it's really interesting as a proof of concept. Yeah, and I, I think I think there's a lot of like successful case studies. I think of, of things that worked well, things that didn't work well. I think the bankless example is something that did work well. And I think that like having because like education is like a core public good. I think we can all agree. And mm -hmm. bankless, you know, mm -hmm. it is media, but it's also education to to a large extent. 
And I think the community at large in Ethereum and like, you know, Urban as well, it's like with Hoon School, it's like education is like so valuable and people so badly love like great documentation, like great and honest like sources of news and updates. So I think it was a good signal from the Gitcoin rounds that, yeah, Bankless was like highly valued in the early days as like a reliable source of information, something people needed in the ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for in some ways, um, Urbit to, to replicate that. Maybe it's yeah. like extending Hoon School a little bit, or maybe it's like other opportunities. But yeah, people people need need to learn on like an ongoing yeah. basis. I mean, even what we're doing and people like you know Justin Murphy are doing is, I mean, it's explicitly yeah, totally. inspired. It's explicitly totally. inspired by Bankless. Like, I'm really impressed mm-hmm. with what they did and how fast they did it and how sort of just strong a positive message they you know do for Ethereum uh, given that, and it's something we want to explicitly replicate. And so you know to the degree that we do have listeners, that's good, but it's an interesting idea for getting listeners more involved by actually getting them to fund it or turning it into some kind of DAO or something like that. It's, it's fascinating. I have to think more. And Padlet, how, how long did that take, that bankless support? Because I know, of course, they have sponsors now. How long did Gitcoin um, have to actually support them before they were able to kind of be stood up on their own sponsorship? Yeah, I, I was just looking back at, at some of the numbers earlier, and I, I think they would receive, you know, maybe around like 30 grand sometimes, like quarter over quarter. So it was like a not significant amount of funding they were receiving. And I think, yeah, obviously now Bankless has a fair amount of, of sponsorships and, and ads within within their episodes. So off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure how many Gitcoin rounds they were a part of, but definitely, definitely a handful um, that allowed them to kind of bootstrap the project. And I think that's when quadratic funding is really at its like at its most optimal state. It's like bootstrapping projects because once even with Gitcoin, like if you've raised more than five hundred k from VCs, like you can't be a part of the round. That's just kind of like a stipulation that we have. But it's like you know, quadratic funding is a great way to bootstrap very early, early like capital into projects that don't at the moment have business models or like ways to capture value to like get them to a point where they are big enough to get advertisements where they are big enough to like start to generate value in like non-extractive ways ideally um yeah i i think bingless is a good example of of gitcoin ads finest and is that the overall like i mean of course uniswap as well is now kind of doing great and doesn't really need probably gitcoin support is that the overall like strategy uh, likely is not still receiving gitcoin support <laughs> Um, is that the overall strategy of Gitcoin to support projects that can eventually stand on their own, that can eventually figure out their own business models? Or are you also fine with just like ongoing support to projects that may never make a buck or become independent? Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, it, it, that's a great question. And yeah, Gitcoin now is kind of in this transition period where we're building out this like grants funding protocol. So increasingly, we're going to just kind of decentralize it out. But currently within like the current paradigm for the past like, number of quarters it's been you know the community decides where the funds go gitcoin ultimately has no all we do is kind of like raise the capital put it into matching pools structure the rounds but then ultimately like we don't choose what gets funded we just like have algorithms that basically match that funding to what the community donates so it's really what the community values uh we do have those stipulations of like you know eventually things like you know uniswap like raised more than 500k and like now they kind of graduated but Uniswap as well mm. is a great example. And this is something I'd love to see kind of emerge in the urban ecosystem of like, you know, Uniswap is like given these grants. Now they've given back. You know, they just launched Uniswap Foundation, which is doing a lot of good public goods work. Uniswap has like historically the past number of rounds given large sums of capital to Gitcoin to distribute to more public goods in Ethereum. I think that's mm. like a really positive like 
it's a really positive cycle where, you know, projects that were supported end up supporting. And I, I think I'd love to see that um, emerge in urban as well once oh. things get a little bit more mature. Yeah, Ukbar already plans to do that explicitly, right. but I think that's some good, you know, motivation to have some set points at which we would, you know, especially mm-hmm. give back to, you know, urban media that we specifically think is effective, um, you know, funding core development, stuff like that. It's it's very much like on the roadmap, and I imagine some of the other, you know, projects that have some financial potential think similarly. Right. I'm interested, though, we, we kind of put it off for way too long, so we should did it, do it. Can we get into your background a little, how you got into Gitcoin, but also what you were interested in before? Or what you were doing? Yeah, totally. Um, happy, happy to speak to that. So, yeah, prior to like joining full time, or like right around the time I, I joined Gitcoin full time, I was finishing up a master's in, in education, particularly in like learning design and ed tech stuff. During the pandemic, got very excited about the the future of learning, the potential for like digitally native learning, and, and what that looks like, and then increasingly networked world so that kind of like led me to grad school um and yeah whenever i like think about like crypto i i can't help but think about like hadza walrus who yeah is at ukvar he's like a good friend of mine from high school and yeah during like 2020 the pandemic like we were both in in college so we both moved back home with our parents and the pandemic happened and we would just like hang out sometimes and he would talk a lot about urban. He would talk a lot about crypto and like that definitely had a pretty profound influence on me and yeah, the work that I'm doing now. So yeah, I don't tell Hadza this often, but yeah, he's definitely like had a really positive influence on me. Someone I, I very much admire. Um, his, his head's too big. We can't tell him anything good. You mean his, his physical, his physical yeah, head, right? Head. Yeah, he has an enlarged, an enlarged cranium rather for worse. Um, but yeah, so so not, nothing but love for Hadzad, and yeah, very lucky that he has Ukbar and Ukbar has him. Um, but yeah, so he so he has like talked to me a lot about that back in the day, and that kind of had an impact on the way that I was thinking about the future of like learning. And increasingly, like as I was finishing up graduate school, I got you know a lot less interested in schools, which I think are just yeah maybe not as uh, I, I you know I just don't think schools are like the most optimal way to learn. I think like a lot of meaningful learning is happening informally, it's happening online, it's happening in like peer-to-peer ways. And I kind of see this like future, especially in crypto and like urban, especially these like ecosystems where there's like legitimate experts now. And like, there's no degrees, there's no like credentials. It's just like people learn on their own, they teach each other. And I think that's like super inspiring. And I think that's super exciting when you know, you think about human growth and development in these like digitally first ways. And yeah, I think that's kind of like the through line of, of everything I've done up until now is just like human growth and development. I think now I'm interested in that from like a crypto perspective and like a digitally native perspective. But yeah, I used to do that stuff with like kids in the classroom and, and things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you really answered already a lot of the question that I was going to ask, which was about expanding some of these ideas to like a larger network age context and what your vision would be for how you called it digital native um, education occurs. And, I, and like you, you talked about it being peer to peer and uh, more informal. And I, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how that might look for, I don't know, children in particular, if, um, if they're not getting their prime education through schools or how some of these systems might look. Yeah, totally. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm generally like, kind of like anti-school when it comes to like learning. I, I think schools play like a really important role in communities in terms of like having, you know, there's, you know, a, a 
you know, 10 or 20% or some crazy number of, of kids in the U.S. at least, like, get their meals from school. Like, they don't have mm-hmm. access to, like, reliable food outside the schools. Mm-hmm. So, like, schools play an enormously important role when it comes to, like, centering communities and providing, like, stability for, like, children. So, I, I mean, the future that I kind of see happening, um, like, irrespective of, of crypto, but I, I think crypto does play an important role, is these kind of, like, networked hubs where, you know, it's, like, these safe spaces for, like, kids to grow and develop. I think it's valuable for kids to be with, like, you know, peers their own age. I think it's enormously valuable for them to, like, feel safe and comfortable and to also be, like, challenged in these environments. And I think, yeah, increasingly, like, I think most learning will happen, like, digitally first. I think there'll be all these, like, great online platforms that you can learn. But I, I think, like, most meaningful learning, at least I've had in my life, has been the result of, like, peer-to-peer experiences. Like, you know, whether it's just, like, talking to, like, Hadzad in, like, my parents' basement yeah. or, like, you know, having experiences, like, going to conferences, things like that. I think, for me at least, like, I think social learning is so important. So, yeah, I think there's going to be really interesting ways. And, and Neuron, this is something I'd love to touch on, you know, maybe, maybe later in the pod as well, kind of your thoughts on, like, network states and and what learning and growth and development look like within those ecosystems. But yeah, overall, I I think it's a very exciting time to be interested in like learning more broadly. I think education kind of has like an unsexy air to it, but like learning is something that everyone does all the time. And yeah, I think being able to like unlock great experiences and create better infrastructure for that is like extremely exciting to me. I'm picturing um, that, that meme where it's like, uh, a low IQ person, a middle person, a high IQ person. <laughs> and it's like on the low IQ, it's getting drunk in your parents' basement. And then in the middle, it's, you know, schools and college. No, and, you, know, you have to go to school. Like you have to do that. And then the, the, to- the topic at high IQ is getting drunk in your parents' basement. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. It's called the, it's called the midwit meme, Mitchell, just so you, just so you know. Um, well, you know, I, I never went to, I never learned that in a formal institution. I'm so, so. I'm so far out to the right that I don't even know the, like, the name. Yeah. Um, Padla, just to lock you down on one part of that when you were talking about the beneficial effects of socialization and kind of community building and sort of services providing of schools versus how you actually learn things. Does that mean that you're expecting or maybe just desiring sort of a decoupling of the social aspects of school for kids from the learning aspects or am I missing something there? Oh yeah, completely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I I definitely think like the future that like I would want to see is, yeah, these schools, they're not like learning centers, they're community centers and they're places where like, you know, very young people and kids can like feel connected to each other, to their local community, to like the adults around them and they feel safe and then they can learn there. But like importantly, it's about like human growth and development, connecting with like peers that are around their age, like peers and near peers and like growing that way. And then I think the majority of learning is going to be yeah, just kind of like digitally mediated. So, yeah. Cool. And the other thing that was kind of coming up for me as you were talking about this, that's sort of, you know, a somewhat different topic, which is, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting into Urbit. You have this background that feels very, you know, just, you know, in education, thinking in, um, in the terms you do. And I don't, you know, know your personal politics or anything, but it definitely feels like, you know, at least, you know, somewhat on a, on a certain type of liberal side. Do you feel any cultural uh disconnect in urbit like feeling that it's more let's say uh right wing or did you feel like it was very aligned with your values or did you feel like there were different types of communities and you got along better in some of them i'm actually just very curious how outsiders perceive it because i've been working a lot to kind of maybe make it less of a i don't know like (laughs) sort of you know neo-reactionary cult 
<laughs> yeah, totally. I I think uh, like I'm I'm personally like very very comfortable in like settings where like yeah, there's all different types of like political beliefs. I, I I do think it's like valuable to just like yeah have conversations with like all different types of people and like hang out with all different types of people. So I I found Urbit to be like interesting. I I think like obviously there there is like you know a kind of like a classic critique or at least of people that like I you know spent some time with with Urbit's like oh like Curry Starvin's project like oh there's like this kind of like very far right like hint to it. But I mean genuinely I I think you know, maybe in the early days, some of that was more founded. But at this point, I think Urbit has done like a really effective job of to some degree, like creating its own path, irrespective of like, mm. yeah, mold bodies, like political ramblings, which I think is like really positive. I, I genuinely think that like Urbit is like becoming to a really great place for like people, you know, the politics are irrespective, like it's just really cool technology. And the work that being that the work that's being done is really valuable. So I, I found, um yeah, like, like the network state chat, I think is like great. Um, network yeah, age. I, we're very, think, we're extremely sensitive about age, that yeah, in the yeah, way that only yeah. losers are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 I yeah. mistake many, many times when we first <laughs> rebranded. After um, we re-educated yeah, you, that's, you yeah, that's great. ceased making those mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think overall, I, yeah, I, I think it's an exciting time. And I, I think just like across crypto, it's like, there's all different types, like political ideologies, I think like when things get really exciting to me is like when people who have like just different baseline ideologies come together around a specific thing, whether that's Ethereum, whether that's Urbit, I think having those short, those sorts of like shelling points for people to like kind of, you know, come to some agreement across differences is like super, super valuable Mm -hmm. and very excited to see Urbit begin to play that role. um, As I, as I've moved more towards being, you know, I mean, just, I think everyone knows I'm kind of an ETH maxi after being more into Bitcoin. I think one thing that has (laughs) struck me is how effectively ETH has been able to keep the focus on sort of growing the market share of ETH uh, and being able to keep a big tent, where at the same time, you know, Bitcoin has for the most part devolved into sort of a kind of like, you know, right-wing purity spiral of like eating steak and like not liking tech. Um, and it's just yeah. not, it's just not very appealing. And I think I'm like sort of uber sensitive about not having Urban mm. fall into that trap. And I think Urban's, as you said, I think it's, it's just great to hear that from you because I think it, it is doing a really good job for lack of a better word, going in an ETH path as opposed to a Bitcoin path, which was not a given, you know, at all times. So I'm really, you know, really happy to see that just as a interested mm. observer. Which is basically keeping the community focused on the actual technology and on not the showing point offshoot. of the technology. Right. So like there, there are things that people in ETH do get really sensitive and up in arms about and they all relate to is censorship happening? Uh, is the network getting less decentralized? Um, literally even I think people in ETH did a great job of pushing back on not having EIP 1559 burn go towards uh, public goods because they knew that would get captured and politicized yeah. and lower the value of the yeah. asset. So I think they've done across the political spectrum. I've done an amazing job of that. And it's something that I really want Urbit to like, honestly, like what would ETH do is sort of my cultural touchstone for when, when people ask me, you know, how Urbit should be acting or where it should position itself. It's like, you know, should we, should this speaker be at a conference? I don't know. Would you have them at DevCon and kind of just like go from, yeah. you know, go from there, I think is you don't, you go in the right direction, which is also really funny because now, like, you know, like now Vitalik is like, you know, just doing entire articles that are like, you know, engaging with, you know, Curtis's ideas on DAOs. And I think it's given yeah, them. That's crazy. I think, and of course, Vitalik has very different political views than, well, 
Actually, yeah. The funny thing is Curtis is actually probably more liberal than him. It's like this weird sort of misconception. But I think um, <laughs> I think I think that um, he, he's they've gained this kind of freedom in ETH by sort of focusing on that and not getting too caught up in a certain type of cultural thing. It's kind of, you know, set them free a little bit to just explore stuff. I definitely agree. And I think Tim, like in large part, like your your Twitter has like done a really effective job of of aligning the urban narrative and the ETH narrative. And especially just, yeah, Ukbar um, as a project ha- has done such an effective job of, of like tying these two worlds together. And yeah, I think having the baseline, like what would Ethereum do? It's like, yeah, to me, that's like a compass pointing in, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I know you've described yourself in like a previous podcast, like a bull tart <laughs> for Ethan. Um, I would, I would... Also identify <laughs> as a pull. I'm like literally. I'm sitting here in another window, like literally. What was the Suju tweet about people jerking off to the burn and concocting purity tests? So I'm literally jerking off to the burn in one pane, watching it. Like we're down to twenty six fifty seven post merge, and then have another thing yeah, going amazing. where I'm another pane open of like other assets I have, looking at when they hit price points where I can swap them into ETH with like another script next to that that I can refresh that like tells me how many ETH I have versus. Versus yesterday and like so I can watch it you know go up via staking so I think that's like a pretty accurate representation of my mental state with regards to the ETH asset currently yeah always a good day to, to swap for ETH as I say <laughs> <laughs> so Hadla, on some of those uh, notes that we are talking about with Urbit I was wondering if you could tell us what you think about the the future of public goods on Urbit, and I know we've talked about some ways um, to fund them, but also what you think are the the types of things that the community should be funding and what sort of direction that work takes in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to get kind of your three perspectives on this as well. I think what one of like, at least to me, the most exciting properties of open source software is that it's like fundamentally generative. And like basically like the sense there is just, you know, with the typical public good, you know, it, it ideally like economically, it's like non-excludable, non-rivalrous, but like in reality, it's like, you know, clean air. If you have like a hundred people, you know, they keep sucking up all the air. Like nothing is really like non-rivalrous, like like use of something always like rivals someone else's use of it generally, but with open source software, that's not the case. It's like fundamentally generative. Like the more that you use of it, the more you create more value that others can use. And for me, that's something I'm like very excited about in the context of urban to basically build out these like core building blocks similar like I know you've talked a lot about the social graph protocol is something that should be really mm-hmm. built out and, and defined and I think that that's a great example of something that can just allow all these different organizations or DAOs or companies on Urbit to kind of level up I think having those like core building blocks and yeah those like Legos I, I think is like super valuable and when I think about public goods on Urbit I, I think about things like that Yeah, that's that's some great stuff. I think um, some of your background in education has made me think about that also as a public good. And as you guys know, I'm currently slogging through uh, in school um, and on my way to become an incredible coder. And um, well, you know, I mean, in, in all seriousness, while I, I don't think I will ever be like a super serious developer on Urbit, I've still found the process really interesting, rewarding and challenging and partially just to get to better know the system, be able to have better conversations with devs and and the people that work at Ukbar and to invest more in like a project you believe in. So I think that uh, turning some of those public goods resources, however they develop towards education, because Hoon School is amazing and it's amazing that it's free, but it's not, it's not perfect. 
And I think that putting more out there that uh, spreads, like, I don't know, the message of Urban about what it is, how it works, how all these things put together is is one of the major things that the foundation and people who believe in Urbit should be doing. Yeah, completely. And I, I think, too, I, I'm sure most kind of, yeah, Urbit built companies like have this in mind. But I, I really think like every, you know, company that's like generated value from building on or within the Urbit ecosystem, like they have like somewhat to me of like an obligation to like support things like Hoon School because like that fundamentally is like what allowed them to create the organization. It's like having great documentation, having access to those like resources is really, really important for the ecosystem to grow. I think it's something that we've seen really really well in uh in Ethereum, having like Ether.js and all these like phenomenal libraries that are, you know, well supported by the community. I, I think it's it's super important to have that for a growing ecosystem, especially these sorts of, you know, things like Ethereum in the early days, things like Urban Now, where it's very bottoms up, you know, you don't get like a degree <laughs> from like Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just like building building out the infrastructure to support that learning and development within the context of Yahoon, I think is is wildly important. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what like logistically that looks like, but I do think, you know, something like, you know, a kickback to, to Hoon School I think would be would be in order. But yeah, I would love to to hear your thoughts, Tim Lucker Nilren as well on this. Yeah, I had a slightly, just a slightly different thought where I was sort of, I've been a little bit wondering, you know, with our address space as it's set up with Urbit, are we kind of like a little bit in this trap of Bitcoin where it's a lot of sort of, where we don't really have a mechanism to spend our bags in order to pump it in the way that like ETH does, right? Where, you know, Uniswap creates new demand for ETH. A lot of the projects that you could fund through Gitcoin will actually create more demand. For ETH, um, it's sort of interesting because like a lot of the, while there's sort of definitely demand going up for Azure Space as more users come on, um, it's not really directly tied into activity on the network, which is interesting. Like this sort of idea of almost like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. Are we are we turning the pod into a brainstorming thing of how to like pump urban bags? Because um, if we're doing that, I'm, I'm down. Like... And so, okay, so here, here we, here we, here we go. So just on the fly, like what that has me thinking of is that I would institute a policy like from the foundation side that was Mm. very strict about what types of sort of things address space was being used for. So when it was being like, if there were situations where it was being sold, uh, try to, you know, do that at specific times, get good prices and, you know, have like long runways afterwards. So you can control that very well, especially in terms of mm. selling galaxies and such. And what that means in practice is like, you know, you have X amount of runway at the foundation that you're going to use for hiring people and paying people to build core. And you then try to like, you know, judiciously increase that. But it like, but if you're not able to do that, you know, even cut some people, especially on like the admin sides to like increase runway and like, you know, really I mean, tighten belts there. Um, but then on the star distribution side, there's two very different models of distributing stars in Urbit. And I think one is much, much better for what we'll call pumping Urbit. And what that and one of them is you give it to people as funding and, you know, maybe they have an, a, a day like they want to quit their day job. And so the foundation is giving them stars to do that. I think that's not great and not really what you want. And if you have someone you really want like to get paid to work on Urbit, you know, you want to find a way to either have the foundation hire them or subsidize them or find, um, you, you know, parties in the ecosystem to put up like cash for them. 
But then you have people who, you know, maybe have a day job and this is a side thing or are doing something at a company in orbit already and are getting paid. And you want to give them, you know, throw them a star or two to do a project and kind of do something for Urbit and then be more invested in it. And I think those kind tend to be a lot better because you don't then put liquidation pressure on it right away and the person sort of feels more invested and does that. And I think that's, I'll, I'll talk with the foundation about that, but I think that's a good, like a good thing to think of. Does it kind of have the mechanics though, do you think, um, that can actually like, you know, more usage of Urbit directly improves it such that I could give away a star and know that like, okay, this app is going to end up increasing I, that, the that, total So value. generally in these things, you need to deal in more big waves and not like, you, you can't really do it at that sort of micro level where you're, where you're trying to do that. You want to make sure like on the whole, it's sort of, there isn't, it's not creating broad selling pressure. So before we get too deep into um, Urbit land, or, or maybe we're already a little too late on that, uh, Peppa, I wanted to um, broaden out again and ask you some questions about what you think public goods look like in a sort of network age, network state context. And um, specifically, you know, as sort of organizations like like. DAOs or, um, you know, connected, dispersed organizations grow. Uh, What do public goods look like in those scenarios? What are the types of things that these groups, be they, you know, as large as a nation or as as small as 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 a community on Urbit, what do they need to develop and how do those grow in your mind? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think we're in like an interesting moment in history where, I think right now, you know, these nation states have the majority of power, but I, you know, I, I think it's it's not, you know, too far of a of too far of the imagination to see a world where, you know, ten years, twenty years from now, we have these like decentralized organizations or kind of network states like you're building out Noran that like have kind of like power that parallels network networks or uh, um, nation states, and I, I think. With public goods, it's very interesting because, like, historically, it's been like on the the onus of these nation states, like, provision public goods to like figure out what to do with taxes, to figure out how to fund roads and core infrastructure and subway systems. I think as we think about network states, you know, with with Praxis, for example, the number I've heard, you know, is like ten thousand people or something. Like, it's a lot of people, and like those people have like shared needs. They have like these public goods, like you know, they're going to need roads, they're going to need plumbing, they're going to need infrastructure. I, I'm very curious about kind of that future world. I know, like at this point it's kind of like 15, 20 steps <laughs> like down the line before we really need to think about infrastructure. But I think it's valuable to at least like begin thinking about what that looks like and how that's like both created, but then also maintained over time in a sustainable way. Um, no run, especially, I'm curious about your, if you've like kind of thought about this at all, or if you have any yeah thoughts around what sort of public goods mm-hmm. look like in these network states as they kind of ramp up to become like increasingly mm-hmm. large. Let me give a framework for talking about this before he answers. So I, I want to clarify that, that we'll probably be talking about two different types of scenarios going forward, which is uh, one I'll call the like, you know, uh, pilgrim or, you know, sort of from scratch scenario where you have a community that's like building a charter city of some kind from scratch mm-hmm. and getting it up and having to deal with that, whatever we want to call it. Let's call that the charter city scenario. And then we have the, like, what I'll call lovingly the parasite scenario, where people find sort of a friendly jurisdiction 
and they live and work in it. But it's not and parasite isn't really accurate because the, that state is also getting benefits from them. But basically, they're latching on to an existing organism. And you know, a good example of that yeah. right now is probably Dubai is doing that heavily, making it pretty easy to go there and set up like you know banking and residency and crypto on off ramps. If you're, um, you know, and do that, but you're not like, it's not sort of formed from scratch. And I think the answers, mm. I don't know if they're different in those cases, but I just want to make sure that we know which of them we're talking about as we go back and forth on this. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't like the term parasitical at all. I think that is <laughs> how like a lot of digital nomad yeah. was, but I think that was related to the people not really planning to be there forever was the huge difference. Sure. Um, so I mean, there. come up with a word that means that you're like latching on to an existing thing. It's, it's symbiotic. <laughs> it's whatever those things are when you're eating the bugs off the animal, but then it's not having fleas. Like, you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about. So let's like, um, yeah, yeah not, so you know. I think, yeah, I think we, we can come up. Yeah. We'll come up with a better word for that later, but yeah, I agree. There are two models. Um, you see this, right. And, and they're very, very different. Yeah. And I think like mainly because like, with the build from scratch one with the charter city, you're looking for kind of jurisdictions where it's relatively cheap to build physically, right? And where the land isn't like particularly owned, um, sort of like where a jurisdiction is willing to sell you land. You could think like, I don't know, if we were looking at the US, right, you'd be talking about like Wyoming, Montana, places with a ton of land where land isn't that expensive. Um, if you're talking about a country abroad, it's like Paraguay. And interestingly, Paraguay's already done this right so like it's already attracted people who have moved their families there who are kind of building long term um, mainly from germany interestingly um and where do public goods look like from the charter city perspective i i think it's like okay look we can build from scratch the challenge is going to be getting that community together i think it's best if you could kind of you know start by planting some people abroad, say in Paraguay, to actually build out this charter city at like a small scale and then kind of recruit more and more members into it. But I think it's going to be this kind of shared vision for what that charter city looks like. And that's what's being really pitched. And that part of that shared vision is like a shared vision around public goods. So it's like, okay, we're going to have really good schools, for example. You know, this, and we see this different nation state by nation state. Um, but I think that's going to be the main pitch of the charter city is like, we're going to align actually a lot on public goods. That's going to be one of the main alignment mechanisms for it. Let me give my answer here because honestly, mine is sort of this, this is definitely the midwit meme where like the left side of it is like not thinking about it. The middle is this like long, like, you know, well, actually you have to like do it in this way and this way. And then the right side is like, basically, you know, people are generally fine to pay for shit. Um, and yeah. what I mean by that is like, there's so much proof of concept in the world of people being completely fine paying, you know, some amount of taxes, uh, you know, that a government, if they're happy with the jurisdiction overall and what it's providing, uh, they just get collected in different ways. So if you take like, and, and they're sort of suitable for different jurisdictions. So if we, we should take jurisdictions that don't tax uh, a ton at the top end, but do collect like sort of substantial revenue uh, and have, you know, fairly large, like you know, pretty substantial welfare states even. Like you could take a small one like the Cayman Islands. Uh, they do very high value added tax. They put taxes on all property sales. Like, so if you buy a house in America, you're paying your realtor, but in Cayman, you're paying your realtor plus the seller is paying a, like just 7% tax on top of it every time the property is transferred. It's very high. 
Um, and you have and you have all this stuff. Now they don't have income tax and they don't have capital gains tax, and that's actually relevant because those are the have the most enforcement overhead and the most all like sort of auditing accounting overhead for the people doing them. So it makes your your jurisdiction super desirable if you're able to you know tax in ways that don't include include those. So basically, what they're doing is if you think of it as policy, is they're taxing you know wealthy people who are churning real estate or even buying it at all with very high, you know, just like sums there. They also don't have property tax, which is harder to enforce and account for. Um, and then they, and then on value-added tax, of course, you are hitting the whole population. You're probably disproportionately hitting people, you know, people with uh, high consumption. Uh, but then they also have, like, pretty substantial uh, social welfare uh, safety nets. And then you get a similar thing in, let's say, Switzerland, which doesn't do capital gains, but they do do income tax. And, you know, you do get the enforcement annoyance and overhead of, um, you know, figuring out people's incomes and making sure they're complying with that. In practice, it doesn't seem to be too hard for them to do. And they have some pretty, you know, generous policies on, you know, how they do that. And, you know, you know but there are obviously, I think everyone knows Switzerland is sort of second to none for infrastructure, lifestyle, stuff like that. So I'll, I'll wrap that up there. But it's worth noting that in practice, these things are actually somewhat solved problems and people are pretty fine paying for stuff if, you know, if they're getting that and you know, the money isn't being wasted. I guess the, the question sort of is, I don't know. Who, who is getting paid? I don't know. This is you know some of the just the the question about when things are are decentralized and distributed. It's not mm-hmm. not everything can be voted on. Not everything can be distributed, especially if you have network states or you know that are spread out across multiple. I don't know physical landmarks. Mm-hmm. I think there there is a slightly different like question about how this stuff gets, gets right. organized. So those are, so you're, you're correct that physical presents a nice choke point for kind of accounting for stuff and collecting it. Like people have these, all these choke points of where they live and how they eat that let you collect taxes easily and pay for stuff. Now worth noting that when we're talking about charter cities or people living in like, you know, a country friendly to the network age, that's absolutely applicable to their governments. But I think you're talking about like, uh, just sort of a network state that goes across borders and how it collects that money and what it does. I think is my, is my brain going to be taxed when it's uploaded to the singularity? <laughs> well, no. I do think that the way you would probably do that is as long as you have enough sort of like status or needs that people have in terms of being at different levels of that or having access to various communities in it. I think there's a lot of incentive for the people with the most interest in it to run it well. And I'm guessing there will be the equivalent of like taxes collected on that. Yeah. I mean, no run, this is maybe a question for you. You're actually out there building mm-hmm. what might be the early, uh, you know, the early days of this type of organization. I mean, what have you, what sort of thoughts have you given this, um, to like how you fund something like this and involve the community. And once you start building, infrastructure that's that's more than like a, a place to stay how do how does that how do you keep your vision and and keep moving forward yeah and i think it's it's more like i think people will actually end up being mostly in the same place physically it'll just be in a different place and they'll be 
kind of connected. So like I, I take the Knights of um, Malta, for example, and like you were sort of a member of, for example, the French branch. And while it was sort of more or less a network state in that it spanned jurisdictions, um, you were still like physically mostly a member of one place. And so I think you'd still mostly pay the vast majority in of your taxes, for example, your fees into providing the services for where you majority live. You're saying that the, the, the network state is like a, a series of frat chapters with dues. <laughs> no, I'm saying it's like, um, it's going to be, let's see, what's the easiest? I'm, I'm trying to, it's like, doesn't, it hasn't really existed before. And like, well, the Knights of St. John weren't at all that. They provided like a tremendous amount of public goods. Um, so do so frats, they, there's all kinds of volunteer work that, you know, that they're, they're out there doing good, good public yeah, I mean, things. I'm, I'm only yeah, joking is, here in that, like, if it's, you know, like, is one set of organization, like, where there are un, un, chapters perhaps united by values that share some sort of funding and infrastructure and goals, and then projects um, fall down to, I mean, is this like a federation? Are we just building, like, you know, the U.S. spread across different things? I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sort of riffing here, but it doesn't, we're talking people, about something that's really new, but... Maybe it's not as Yeah, the thing people think. come together for, like, I think more the intergenerational, like the multi-generational plays, and that that massively relates to education, safety. Like, they really, when you get people who are really thinking about their kids and kind of future generations, that's when you get, like, really good human collaboration. I think these sort of, like, mm-hmm. of course, there'll be probably networked social um, states that look more or less like frat clubs, sure. Like, you know, like a Harvard final club, right? Those, those are quite powerful and influential. But I think the thing that people really miss today that they want to coordinate on um, is really more like future generations. I think that's why a lot of people moved to Paraguay, for example, from the Germanic communities when I studied that. They, they were not really concerned so much about their own individual life. They were trying to find a place where they could have build a better future for their kids. And I think that's the type of motivation that really leads to investment in public goods. One of the final things I wanted to hit, Padlet, is something that I was listening, actually, it was yesterday, the day before, to the Bankless interview with the PRISM team and um, Arbitrum, who had just acquired them. And one thing mm-hmm. that, like, struck me is the fact that, you know, PRISM got that funding from Gitcoin and others, you know, notably Vitalik, yeah. early on to keep going. And it didn't seem like, though, they didn't have a Uniswap path where they ended up then turning that into, you know, a pretty you know, sort of huge product or even to some degree like you know a bankless path where now bankless can sort of mm-hmm. you know advise projects invest in them and then promote the stuff they've advised in on their pod and i'm not, I'm not criticizing that at all like you know good on them i think it's right. you know in some ways we're doing that um but like if you take someone like a group like prism you know they obviously did incredibly important work for ethereum you know maybe you know as much as as much as anyone and then they're in this situation where just from the randomness of the type of project they've chosen there's no token there's no like you know advising possibility they're just you know programming all the time and for projects like that is there sort of a dissatisfaction like man i like sort of wasted this whole bull run maybe you know maybe they bought some eth like on the side but like right. you know not not a ton do you see that as like a tension like in practice or how, how does that just generally get worked with yeah yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I, I think that's, yeah, there's there's so much room for improvement in public goods funding. And I mean, quadratic funding especially, it's 
you know, some of the projects like Bankless or Uniswap, like, you know, they have this kind of air around them. Like people know about it. Prisms is like doing such core protocol work. And like, we need things like Prisms around, but it's hard for like the everyday person who's just like kind of a casual interactor in these networks to like necessarily know what Prisms is or like what it does and why it matters. I think, you know, to some degree with Quadratic funding, it, it is kind of gameable in the sense of like, if you have the best marketing, if you have the best like kind of outreach PR strategy, mm. you can often get like the most amount of funding. And I think even with like retroactive funding too, which is a mechanism that Optimism has really employed in terms of, you know, like they sum it up as like impact equals like value that you get back essentially. I think that's like one way to kind of address that, but still it's like, you know, who's deciding that impact, you know, I think all of us have like biases, like we all are, you know, susceptible to like seeing some advertisement like thinking about that thing like a week later I think you know we see something on Twitter we think about it more it's like things like that Mm -hmm. where I think we need like better mechanisms and probably a variety of mechanisms that like come together to produce like a better outcome because it sucks when we have like core core work like prisms you know I feel unsatisfied with like kind of grants and things like that I, I think to at least me that's a sign that there's a lot of like room for improvement um, and I'm especially curious about this as well in like the urban context with some of the grantees from the foundation and how people feel about that. I think something that we at Gitcoin have historically maybe have room for improvement with is like supporting grantees more as they kind of develop, like keeping up with them. I know other programs like the, you know, Ethereum support program and other kind of grants giving bodies, like, you know, they have like milestones, things like that. They check out their office hours. I, I think that's a better way as well to kind of not hold hands, but just like, you know, go through the development together overall. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think like, you know, for my part, it's something I'm just going to sort of start brainstorming a lot to think of how to, yeah, both people keep people motivated, find ways to like, I don't know, smooth upside in some ways. You know, if you look for like, you know, Mm -hmm. mining or validating, like smoothing has like been good. And I wonder whether for, it's hard for public goods because then you get this thing where people kind of try to get in on it in order to access the, like the smoothing. So it's more, it's trickier. So maybe, you know, maybe it like, maybe you just have to sort of leave it up to, um, you know, people doing it uh, and sort of deciding retroactively to like distribute upside, but it's, it's at least worth thinking about because it's hard when people work on, and honestly for Urbit, we'll probably have that soon for people who are working on the core and by doing so are foregoing the opportunity to work on, you know, maybe more lucrative high upside projects. And I don't know yet how to handle that, but it's, yeah, it's good to see this prior art and start thinking about it. Yeah. I I think protocol guild has done some, some great work as well in terms of supporting core devs, um, Mm. On Ethereum, I think there could be some, you know, like Urbit model of that as well, because yeah, we need like core devs and we need core devs that like, you know, care about what they're doing. And yeah, when there's like all these other projects that are willing to pay them like, you know, multiples of hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to just like kind of do less work, mm. it gets very tricky, like philosophically for them to be it's, like, this is the work I want to do. It's almost yeah. not that I want to like, you know that I'm worried that they will care about the money, but I'm more worried that they'll put in all the time and then feel bad at the end or just, you know, be in worse yeah. financial positions than their peers. And, you know, maybe things like advising are the, like, are part of the answer. I know that gets a little tricky in terms of them getting bribed, but, you know, really picking projects you think have high upside and, like, having a cultural uh, expectation that de- the core devs might do that and might sort of pick some winners or support them might, you know, it might actually be positive. We have to, you know, have to see. 
Yeah, I think one last point I might say on this is from from DevCon. Something I was really impressed by was yeah the, the Ethereum Foundation basically offering anyone who contributed to ETH two like a lifetime pass to like ETH global hackathons and like DevCons and like ETH, oh, cool. ETH events going forward. I think that's phenomenal that they did that. And, like their reasoning for doing it was like what they kind of said on stage was just like you know we have these core developers, they don't even have the time to like go and try and like get these uh, like tickets these events. I think there's like ways to kind of give back like that to. Core developers um because ultimately like core devs are public good and they deserve to be like you know funded and they deserve to be like treated very well and i think there's a lot of innovative ways to it's, to um it's very network agey to think of giving them what effectively amount to like nfts that like represent the rights to do things or that there's a so, like a social commitment yeah. to honor it's almost like actually the other place you could probably draw prior art from is it has a lot of parallels to like being a veteran or something uh where you get you know some kind <laughs> right. of preferential access in like that state like the core devs are in a lot of ways, the, you know, vets, uh, like it's very Lifetime much like, you know, thank, thank you for, for your all service. Core devs. Donuts, <laughs> here donuts, here free donut, free donuts. Yeah, cut, uh, cut, cut, cut the donut no, lines. It's, yeah. it's a cool, it's a cool ethos. And in fact, you know, as a sort of, you know, if you think of America, it very much does have sort of a, you know, NFTs for core devs. Um, and it's, you know, not all, or sorry, for, uh, for veterans and not all cultures have that. And you can, you know, decide what constitutes being a veteran and what you want to incentivize. But it's, it's at the very least an interesting model that it's cool that ETH is starting to explore that. And we probably need to do that in Urbit with, like, you know, me first in line as, like, you know, a, a veteran of however many, like, you know, two and a half years <laughs> that I should get respect from my, what do they yeah. call it in multi-level, in multi-level marketing, like your downline? Like, you guys are my downline. I think it's daddy. Yeah, we call you daddy. It, no, no, you, you, like, literally have the people you recruited who pay you a percentage because you, like, got them in. And I think, like... I actually have, right, I have, like, definitely Nilrun and Bitchel. Uh, I, I sort of have Hobzod in, in there, and then so Padlet is two levels of the downline. He's really getting <laughs> yeah. checked. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited for this. It's all, it's all coming together in my mind. In the works, too, just called, like, the um, Core Dev Guild that, like, um, Ravness Rickford has been working on. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, that he's like, in, at yeah. the very top of, like, this pipeline. Yep. So all the... Yeah, he's yeah. above you, basically. So, I, yeah, we're all downstream his, from Mr. Blackman. Oh, we, yeah. we are indeed. Well, uh, on that note, uh, Padlet, I want to thank you for being here. This is an awesome conversation. Uh, my my last question for you, though, is um, when is the, the Gitcoin funding in... Uh, funding coming in for my novel i've been waiting <laughs> yeah. on it for for a couple of weeks and i just I, re- I just don't think i'm gonna be able to finish do it people do people even comes. know about your novel or are you sort of too precious to like let it out into the world well i just i i can't um i can't i can't tell anyone about it till i've till i've got all the, the gitcoin money so make oh, sure everyone okay. to go to go vote for that and yes. uh thank you uh for being here this was great yeah thanks for having me guys this was delightful and yeah big pleasure thanks for having me All right, if you've made it to the end of this show, we just want you to know that we love having you here. We don't do any ads, and the only thing that we would love to have from you is for you to spread the network age and engage with it. So, uh, obviously, downloading and listening is great. Give us a five-star review on the platform of your choice. Retweet our podcast announcements so they get out there. And then engage with us both on Urban and Twitter. We'll have the link to uh, joining the Network Age group on Urban in our show notes, as well as our Twitter handles. And anything nice uh, or interestingly mean that you say to us on Urban, Twitter, and our DMs, we'll read it on the show. 